have a Bible, and I hope you do, please turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and we'll be looking at chapter 10, verses 1 through 13 this morning. So I once read this story of a man who was looking to hire someone. And he was looking to hire someone to drive his stagecoach. Now, if you're a child here, maybe you know what a stagecoach is, maybe not. But basically, a stagecoach is a four-wheeled wagon drawn by horses. And so, not a car, none of that. And so, this man was looking to hire someone to drive his stagecoach. And so, to get him from place to place, and he wanted them, to, or him, to get him to place to place in a very timely manner. Now at some points along the way, along his way, the road would get rather narrow. And as it did, there would be kind of this deep precipice on one of the sides. Now, precipice meaning like you could fall off, there weren't any rails there, and so if you're not careful, well, over you go to your death. And so he was looking for an experienced driver. And so the man, he went about interviewing people for the position, and he asked them, so how close can you get to the edge without actually going over the edge? And so this was his question to all the people he would interview. And so one man, he said, well, uh, he said uh, he could drive the coach very quickly and get the coach within two to three inches of the edge without going over the side. I know you're encouraged, right? I want that guy. <laughs> now another man, he said, well, you know what? I can beat that. <laughs> I can get the coach within an inch of the edge without going over the edge. Okay, so a third man, interviewing, answers this question, and he says rather plainly, you know what? I am not doing any of that. <laughs> I'm going to stay as far away from the edge as possible. So who do you think the man hired? Right? Yeah, he hired the third man. It's kind of a trick question, right? He wasn't trying to hire someone who was, who was going to be the most reckless, getting as close to the edge as they could, and to danger, he wanted to find someone who would be staying away as far as they could from danger. Well, at times, when it comes to sin and temptation, we can, whether you know we realize it or not, we can go about living like the first two of those men. You know, asking ourselves, how close can I get to sin? Can I get to temptation without falling off the edge? Not giving into it, not giving ourselves over to that sin. Yet this morning, Paul would have us be like the third man, to see the danger, the evil of sin, the draw of all variety of temptations, and not desire to go after them. But to hold fast to God, to cling to Christ, and to walk in accord with him. So to see this, let's read here then, beginning 
with verse 1 of chapter 10. So may the Lord give us grace by His Spirit through His Word this morning to address sin in our own hearts. And not mildly, but with honesty and with boldness this morning. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud, and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were, as it is written. The people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did, and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction, on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Amen. Now, there are aspects of this passage that should sound rather familiar to us. As in, it has something of the tune of last week's verses that we saw from chapter 9, verses 24 through 27. So maybe you remember that, maybe you don't. So what was going on there in chapter 9? Just look up there in your Bible, or maybe it's on the other page, but look there, and you'll see it. As followers of Christ, we are in a race. And we need to run, and we need to run not aimlessly following any desire or just anything out there, but we need to run with self-control and discipline, and to we're to run for what lasts. And so the reason we feel the winds of those verses, chapter 9, verses 24 through 27, is because we're meant to. You are meant to feel the wind from those verses because those verses transition right into our verses here this morning. And so we see part of this connection here simply with that first phrase there in verse 1. And that word, that first word, for. Right? You see it? Not F-O-U-R, F-O-R, for. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers. So he's directly connecting it to what we just read. You could think all that, running the race, not aimlessly, running for the prize, for I do not want you. So you see how it's connected. He's explaining and expanding upon what he said back 
in our previous verses in chapter 9. Now, as he does all this, he's also doing something else. He's returning to his whole discussion on idols and how believers must not take idols and idolatry lightly. And so that's where he's heading with these verses here this morning. And so if you remember in chapter 8, even if you know what's behind an idol isn't real, so chapter 8, verses 1 through 6, as in there's no real God behind it, Paul's circling back to say idolatry is serious business. And so he's coming back around to this whole discussion on food offered to idols that he started back in chapter 8. So if you're like, well, wait, you know, I think Andrew or Pastor Andrew said it went from chapter 8 to chapter 10, but it seems like chapter 9, he just went way off of that. Well, I wasn't lying. It's from chapter 8 to chapter 10. Paul is addressing idolatry and idols in Christian liberty among the people and the believers of the church of Corinth. And so he's heading right back there with a vengeance. Now just see here how relevant his concern was and really still is. You know, I know not everybody here was able and has been able to go to a home group, or if you have not, we would love to get you in one. But I think our discussions in our home groups have made that very clear. All of this that he's been talking about, idols and everything else, has some deep and ready applications for us today. I mean, I know just in our home group alone, we get to like two questions and we spend the entirety of the time talking about them. There's so many avenues and aspects from these chapters that relate directly to things that we're experiencing here in our lives right now. And so Paul, he has made clear though, we're not to look out on all of this and say, you know, I'm free. I'm free in Christ, so you know what? Forget everybody else. That's not to be the mind or the heart of believers. We're not to run in kind of a rights-centered way, but a Christ-centered way. In view of the cross, denying ourselves and following him. So hence we come then to this emphasis here. In verses 1 through 5, on the rock of Christ. The rock of Christ. Now, it doesn't take long, as you can see here, just how thick Paul's Old Testament references are here. I mean, throughout this passage, the Old Testament, it is brought up again and again and again, right? And so first, he hearkens back to the Exodus and God's powerful saving hand there in verses 1 through 2. Now, as we look at that, it's not the main point here, but it is interesting, the wording that he uses here in these opening verses. And so he says in verse 1, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud. And so the interesting words there are, our fathers. And that's interesting because he's writing to to a mostly Gentile church. 
You see why that would be interesting? Our fathers? <laughs> and so the connecting point here is in that, in the emphasis on God, in the plans of God, and the people of God. That's the connecting point. He's saying our fathers with a sense of continuity, like it's ongoing, continuing with that idea, God's plans and God's people. God's plans have continued, and at the center of it all is Christ. And what he's saying, Christ is the fulfillment of the promises of God and his covenants and all who are in him, whether they are Jew or Gentile, and we can just glory and marvel at this, they are God's people in Christ. And we can say that because that's what Paul is saying. Our fathers. And this is why Paul can say this here, and it's what Paul means. But what he says in Galatians as well, when he wrote in Galatians 3.29, he said, and if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. You are inheritors. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ here, you are part of that promise that God made to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 and Genesis chapter 15. You are the people of God Amen. if you are in Christ. Now, more could be said on that. Only two words. But see that Paul is just rather casually making this connection, <laughs> assuming that the readers just get this. And so there they were. The fathers, Israel, they had passed under the cloud. So what is he talking about there? If you know your Old Testaments, right, in Exodus, the cloud by day and the fire, the pillar of fire by night, right? Well, that's what he's referencing. And we all kind of know What's next? The passing through the, the sea, Charlton Heston, right? I mean, that's instantly what you're thinking about. I can see it in your eyes. Ten Commandments. Well, that's what he's talking about here. God's powerful hand parting the seas. And so we recall and we're meant to recall the all-inspiring story of Exodus and of God's incredible deliverance and redemption of his people. And so why was this such a key moment here? Like, why is he bringing this up? Well, and why was that such a key moment in general? Well, we could talk a lot about that, but we won't. But in light of what Paul is saying here, he's saying it marked them off. They weren't associated with Egypt anymore. The idolatry there, the false worship there, but now they belong to God, and now they were to live in the worship of God. And so Paul says in verse 2, And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Now as we read this, this isn't intended for us to carefully analyze every detail and see how it corresponds to New Testament baptism. But what he's doing is he, he's looking through the lens of believer's baptism in Christ under that name, in the name of Christ. So you're baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, baptized into his name. 
in believer's baptism. And so he's looking at that and saying they were, in a way, baptized also, but into the name of Moses. So do you see that? And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and the sea. Now, in believer's baptism, and this is part of what he's saying with them, they were associating themselves with Moses as this people, as this kingdom. When believer's baptism, you are publicly identifying yourself with Christ for the first time. doesn't save you, but you are publicly identifying yourself with Christ, with his church, and with his new covenant. Now, we're not there yet. We'll talk about the Lord's Supper in just a moment, or not today, but very soon. But in the Lord's Supper, what are you doing then? You are ongoingly identifying yourself with Christ, with his church, and with his new covenant. Yet, as we say that with kind of new covenant lens, and Paul looking in old covenant lens, behind all of that, old covenant, new covenant, exodus, all of these things, the redemption there in exodus, redemption in Christ, behind all of it was God. And God's deliverance of Israel through Moses and God's deliverance of you in Christ. Both. Period. God delivered the people of Israel. God delivered you. However, Paul gets more specific. Now, if you're sitting here and you're thinking, okay, this is kind of, you know, there's a lot here to think about because there is a lot here to think about. I mean, these are some challenging verses here. But we're going to try to bring them down here during our time this morning. And so as we see this, Paul, he gets more specific, and he makes clear on both counts, which is incredible, Exodus and us, it was Christ. Let's ponder that for a minute. (laughs) The spiritual food he references here In verses 3 through 5, he's referring to the manna that God supernaturally gave Israel. Now, if you want to see the fulfillment of that, go to John 6, but not now, maybe at home. Go to John chapter 6. Jesus feeds the 5,000. We won't talk about that here. Go home and you can look at that. So manna. And the spiritual drink he's referring to is the water that God supernaturally gave Israel from a rock. And so Paul, he says in verse 4, For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Now he's not actually saying that a rock was following them around. You know, like they're walking around, like, oh, there's a rock right there. Well, that, what is that? You know, they weren't doing that. You know, that's not what you envision here. That's not what was happening. And how odd a sight that would be. And so he's saying, he who gave them the manna and he who gave them the water was Christ. Incredible. As in, he was the source of both. So the symbol, like what it was pointing to, representing, the symbol of the rock 
that Moses struck in Exodus 17 that Francie read a moment ago. And then even later in Numbers 20, when Moses, in unbelief, he what? He strikes the rock, and God was like, no, I told you to tell the rock. And God's serious about his symbols. Because that symbol right there, what did it point to? It pointed to Christ and the rock of Christ. It wasn't literally Christ, as in, as in like the eternal sun had become a rock. But the sun was the, S-O-N, the sun was the supernatural source of the bread and of the water. He was behind all of that in Exodus, in the Old Testament, the eternal Son of God. However, the people did not look to God by faith from the heart. Hence, verse 5. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now, Paul, he will say more about that in these next verses. But see Christ here, and specifically, see Christ in the Old Testament. So see both the eternal existence of the Son, S-O-N, Him who never had a beginning and will never have an end, and the way the Old Testament is just seriously, persistently, and continually pointing to Christ. And so as you hear that, you need to hear, saints, which we, I've heard this a lot, like, we don't really need the Old Testament anymore, right? And how many people have said that? We don't need that. I don't like that. I just want the New Testament. Well, friends, the Old Testament is not just fluff. It is spirit-inspired, Christ-exalting, Christ-centered, inspired words of God that point continually to Christ and to the gospel. The same God of the Old Testament is the same God of the New Testament. And so let me just ask you, is that the way that you see the Old Testament? And as we see this, not allegorically, as in you just kind of make it up, you know, but in actual texts, points, places, themes, people. It's not imagining Christ anywhere and everywhere. It's textual. We say it because Scripture says it. It's textual as in, I can show you, like right now, and you should be able to show me as well why this or why that points to Christ with actual passages and emphases that also make that clear, as Paul is doing here. And so we don't go to the Old Testament and just pull things out of thin air. But these, as Paul even says here, and if you're coming with us on this journey through the Old Testament on Wednesday nights, you have seen this. You have seen the text point to Christ, old and new. And so we see this truly points to Christ, even in Exodus, as we sing 
our rock and our redeemer. Because that is what he is. And he has always been. Now that point leads Paul to his bigger point here. Which is our second point here this morning. Our need for the rock of Christ amidst warring desires and temptations. Our need for the rock of Christ amidst warring desires and temptations. So in many ways, verses 1 through 5, they're setting up his points here. And they connect us to what we see here. So right in accord with that then, he makes clear that those things were written to help and to instruct us. And so we see that in verses 6 and 11. So verse 6, it says, Now these things took place as an example for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. All of that back then, all those things that happened, they were written to teach you. I mean, how many reasons do you need to read the Old Testament? And who inspired the New Testament? The Spirit of God. Who inspired the Old Testament? The Spirit of God. And so these things were written to teach you. New Covenant believers, Jews and Gentiles, those who have put their faith in Christ. They were written to teach us. And so Paul, he's saying, you see those examples of old covenant Israel. That is there to instruct and to warn you. See how important, Paul still, see how important self-control and discipline are as you run the race. There's the connection. We're not simply to let our desires rule over us like it did then. You're to live in accord with the new hearts that you have been given in Christ. And so Paul is emphasizing this. Friends, your desires are not your identity. Do you get that? I mean, that's the air we breathe today. Your emotions, your desires... I mean, they really are the authority. It's not even, in the back of the day, it was rationalism, science, and these kind of things. Well, it's not that now. It's whatever you feel. You need, and we need, and I need, we need to hear your desires are not who you are, nor are they to be who you are. Desires let loose is not a good thing. And so it is that we see here, Paul, he makes all these emphases in verses 7 through 10. Idolatry, sexual morality, testing God, and grumbling is not for you. Is not for you. He's showing how they did desire evil and were driven and ruled by those desires. The heart's hearts of flesh and their hearts 
ran amok. Now, as he puts these before us, remember what these are. They're for you, examples of what you aren't to desire. And so as we read this, we would be doing wrong, including myself, all of us here. You are meant to consider your own heart and your own desires here as you look at each and every single one of these. So verse 7, Paul, he quotes from Exodus 32, 6 to say, yeah, that idolatry they took part in, that, that golden calf stuff that they did, that eating and rising up, that was not innocent. It was evil. Idolatry is evil, and it's serious. You wonder where evil comes in. Verse 6 again. Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Verse 8. The sexually immoral in the midst of the camp. We're not going to go here either, but Numbers 25 verses 1 through 9. You can write that down and go and look at it for yourself. Numbers 25, 1 through 9, where they had sex with the women of Moab. And God, he brought great judgment upon them. And what do we see from this? We see sexual immorality is also evil. Verse 9, they put Christ to the test. Just stop right there. Notice it again. Who did they put to the test in the Old Testament? Right. Emphasis on Christ in the Old Testament again. They put him to the test there in Numbers chapter 21. Challenging God and challenging Moses. And again, God's judgment came upon them through serpents. Verse 9, Numbers 21. So verse 10. In Numbers 14 and Numbers 16, and even Exodus 17, they grumbled against the Lord and were destroyed. What do we see? Grumbling is evil also. So having seen that, why does Paul say all of this? All of these verses, verses 1 through 10, to lead us into verse 11 and 12 and 13. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. These things were written for you. I mean, what a thought. For you, believers, God, in his sovereign purposes and plans, with all of its mystery, he purposed and planned that all of these things would be for us to learn from, to be warned by, and to take heed to. And friends, we need to be warned. You need to be warned. I do. 
You know, it's so easy to think, you know, I'm better than all that, right? No, I won't fall. I wouldn't give my heart over to an idol. You know, I wouldn't have sex outside of marriage or commit adultery within marriage. I would test God. I wouldn't grumble against all those around me and against God and against his church. Yet honestly, I mean, what do we see all around us? I mean, not just all around us, but even within ourselves, right? People doing just that. And even here in this letter, in 1 Corinthians. And so, as we see this, we need to have this humble view of ourselves. Not a high view, a humble view. And it's this. That apart from the grace of God, so go I also. Apart from the grace of God, so go I also. Verse 12. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. Now that sounds like it's for us, doesn't it? Like for you and for me. As in, you can fall too. Now I remember reading the story of a believer, true story, who was doing something rather innocent. I was just going to check him and his family into a hotel and so he had his family with him. They were out in the, his car. And so he's married and he had his children. And the Lord had been good to them, you know? I mean, their marriage was going well. Things were going well. Yet as he, as he was talking to the receptionist, he had this thought. You know, she's pretty attractive. Hmm. You know, what if, what if I just gave in to that? What if I just left all this right now and gave in to my desire? I mean, just in a moment, this, this desire, this temptation, that would absolutely change everything in his life in one moment as he's checking into a hotel. I mean, it was only a second, right? A thought. But there it was. Now, in that instance, by the grace of God, he didn't give in. But let me just ask you, I mean, you already know the answer to this question. How many do give in? And it is just like that. It's just a moment. It's just one thing. A brief thought. A brief touch. A brief something. And so be careful, friends. How quickly any one of us can fall. Yet Paul, he continues in verse 13. He says, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. 
But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. You're not alone. You're not alone in this. We are all tempted, some in one way, others in another. You may gossip, or be, it, may, it may be gossip, it may be greed, it may be stuff, it may be pride, it may be sex, it may be money, it may be anger, maybe food, it may be drugs, it may be alcohol, it may be beauty, health, but whatever it is, we're all tempted. And some in greater ways than others, right? But we are all tempted. As you read these words, look around you. Every person here, every person here is tempted. No matter where they are, no matter how immature you may think they are or whatever else, we are all tempted. No temptation has overtaken you. That is not common to man. That's every one of us. And this is why we must be humble about this. About our Christian life. It really is grace. It really is Christ. God really is our hope. And this is where Paul puts the hope. He puts the hope squarely on God. God is faithful. Man, I'm not faithful, but he's faithful. Amen. And I can look to him, and he is my help in time of need. And so he provides a way out, and it's never detached from him. It's never detached from Christ. It's never detached from his spirit. But it's right there right at the cross, centered on the rock of Christ. The satanic lie is to think God has not and does not provide a way out for you. I mean, I can't tell you how many people I've talked to who have told me and they said they feel like they're the only one struggling with this. Or I can't share this thing I'm struggling with because no one else struggles with it. Like I do. That's not true. That's a lie. There's a way out. You know, like the Chinese finger trap. Maybe you know these. You guys know what I'm talking about? The Chinese finger trap. You know, I remember when I was first tricked to put one of these on, you know? I didn't know what it was. Like, hey, man, why don't you put this on? You know, as a youngin. <laughs> well, what happens, right? I mean, you put your fingers in, two sides, and you're stuck, right? You can't get them out. I mean, you pull as hard as you can, and they're not coming out, right? No way. I didn't know there's a way out, but there was a way out, wasn't there? And I'm not going to tell you the way out either. You have to go find out yourself, <laughs> So everyone bring a Chinese finger traps next week. And we'll test how well you do. But there was a way out, right? And so also in this life, as you face temptations and desires within you that are just so pressing 
and so hard and so overwhelming. You need to know, saints, that there is a way out. And God is our hope right there in the midst of it. And so see that. Yet see sinful desires for what they all are. And that's all he says here. In verse 6, they're evil. Idolatry is evil. And I highlight that because this is Paul's broad point here. It's where he's going in the coming verses next week. It's not neutral, whether it comes in the form of those things I mentioned before or even literal idols that you bow down to. We need to see that our sinful desires, and we need to see our sinful desires for what they are. Hope and help are not found in acting like they're not there. You need to hear that. Hope and help are not found in acting like they're not there. You know, it's like you're, you know, especially you see this with little kids, you know, it's like you're playing hide and seek with them, you know. And they put their hands over their eyes and they're like, oh, you can't see me, you know, right? They're like, I can see you right there, you know. But they think since I have my hands over my eyes, you know, I, they can't see me. You know, saying that no one can see this, that can, no one can see my sin. Back with our struggles with sin and self, too. The root of the desire is the issue. And that root is in your heart. Here's the honest truth. When you sin, you sin. It was not the other person. It was not the circumstances. It was none of those things. The things that came out of you were from you. I just let that settle on you. They didn't make you do it. No one forced your hand. Your sin came from you and it came from your heart. It's when you see that, that is seeing sinful desires for what they are. When you get to that point and you see that, you're not pointing everywhere else and you're saying, well, they did this, they did that, and all these other things, but you're saying, no, wait, that was me. All that stuff that came out just now, that was from me. Oh, Lord. I'm such a sinner, and I need the Lord. I need Christ, and please forgive me. My hope is only in him, and that's where your help will come, not when you're pointing everywhere else. And so temptation is no laughing matter. Temptation is no laughing matter. How many have fallen because... They're trying to see how close they can get their wheels to the edge without sinning. Those desires, they must be addressed or they're just going to keep coming. And so take up this passage. Hear its warning and fight by considering not just what you know or what you do, but what's going on in your heart.
Why do I say that? Not just what you know or do. This is where Israel got it all wrong. This is part of Paul's point here. It was all external. They passed through the sea. They received the manna and they received the water. They aligned themselves with Moses on the outside. But on the inside, many of them were still desperately lost. This is another aspect of being disqualified. That you never knew the Lord in the first place. This is not about you. It's not about, uh, it's not about you. It's about Christ. It's not about what you do. It's about him. It's about the rock of Christ. And as you see this, as you struggle, as you wrestle, don't miss the rock. Don't miss him in your temptation. Don't miss him for the externals. Be warned. Be helped, be humbled, be honest. And ask yourself, what evil desires do you need to address this morning? What sins in your own heart and life? Even asking, has it been just like Israel? Has it just been all externals? All these things, when it's never really been about the heart. And that in Christ, Christ has given you a new heart. And so, you and I, we're not to hear all of this and look away. But look right at it. Look at your heart and ask, is it Christ's in this, in that? And the other. And if it is, then take up Paul's words here this morning and learn from the fallen and flee to Christ and fight in the power of Christ today. Because in him, as we so often see, is the victory. Let's pray. Father, we come before you and we come as we have just heard your word. As we may have longed for your word and we have longed even with anticipation coming to this day, the Lord's day. Help us now, Lord, as we perhaps need to face some stark realities and stark truths. But we ask that you would help us to come not with closed hands, but with open hands, and to come honest with ourselves, to come honest about our struggles, about our sins, not acting like we're something we're not, but admitting that's exactly what I am. I need you, Lord. I do struggle with this. I am a sinner, and my hope is not in me. It's in you. It's in your grace. I'm not hoping in a gospel of legalism or a gospel of antinomianism or a gospel of works. I'm hoping in a gospel of grace. 
And so help me, Lord, today. Help us, Lord, today to walk and look and live in accord with that gospel. Because there, as we do, there is where there is hope. There is where there is help. And there is where we will deal with our hearts and our struggles and our temptations. And we'll look to Christ, our rock and our redeemer. And so help us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. stand as we sing or come to the altar if you've made a decision today please let us know what that is come and see the pastor if you're online send us a note through the webpage you can't do this on your own I can tell you from experience you'll fail come to Christ and trust him let's sing